0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Washington D.C., and I am your host, Julie Kurtz. It has been an honor to host Lunch Agenda these past nine weeks throughout the Eating the Green New Deal series. Over the past couple months, we've covered uh, green the Green New Deal from various food system angles, with insight from farmers, scientists labor organizers, legal and policy experts, and leading food businesses who've helped us think through what a food system that exploits neither people nor planet might look like. Our final Eating the Green New Deal episode is a real treat. Today, we bring together many of the strands from the past weeks of conversation and consider how they play out in the U.S. Senate. We're fortunate today to have Adam Zipkin, Deputy Chief of Staff to U.S. Senator and of course, presidential candidate Cory Booker. Adam is also accompanied by some of his press team here, but we've got Adam on the line for his expertise in agricultural and environmental issues. So as Deputy Chief of Staff, Adam advises Senator Cory Booker on environment, energy, agriculture, animal welfare. Prior to his employment in the Senate, he worked as Deputy Mayor uh, for economic development at the city of, in the city of Newark New Jersey and chief of staff for the city's Department of Economic and Housing Development he's been recognized in Essex County for his pro bono attorney service and Adam it is an absolute honor to have you on the show today
1: thank you it's very nice to be here
0: so, in our very first episode in the series, uh, we had a sustainable agricultural policy specialist, Fred Hefner, someone you probably know, and I. We agreed that this year uh, we had was special because we have not heard major political candidates preaching the gospel of soil health um, from major media pulpits. And, but we've been hearing candidates and other political leaders talk about soil sequestration and soil health, even in some of these short debate clips and speeches. And so as we sort of, we talked about this as they, maybe this is where on the dawning year of, of, of sexy soils. And so... Uh, we are lucky to have Adam today because Senator Cory Booker has proposed a couple of very Green New Deal relevant agricultural bills that really capture um, what it means to have healthy agricultural systems. So, the Climate Stewardship Act, and then just this week, hot off the press, the Farm System Reform Act. So, as we discussed in the first series, the Green New Deal is very big picture. And it it really needs concrete bills and laws to give it some flesh and bones. And from a food systems angle, I think we could say that these two bills from Cory Booker do that. So to start us out, Adam, could you just give us a quick overview of what these bills say and how they would potentially change our food system? Let's start with the Climate Stewardship Act. So, yes.
1: So, the Climate Stewardship Act is focused on what are known as natural climate solutions. And so, currently in the United States, of all the carbon emissions that come from the transportation sector, from electricity generation, currently our forests and our wetlands and our soil absorbs around 10% of those emissions. But there's been scientific papers in the last couple of years that have said potentially we could be sequestering exponentially more maybe double Mm. that much carbon if we were to invest in our forests and our wetlands and in our soils Mm -hmm. and so what the climate stewardship act does is it focuses on all three of those areas and so it would plant billions of trees it would plant four billion trees by 2030 Mm -hmm. over 16 billion trees by 2050 It would um, restore millions of acres of coastal wetlands. And really the heart of the bill is using existing voluntary USDA conservation programs to invest in farmers and ranchers as part of the climate change solution. So investing in um, specifically practices that um, planting cover crops, rotational grazing, reducing the use of nitrogen fertilizer, which is a source of emissions. Mm -hmm. And so the bill would um, essentially pay farmers and ranchers that want to participate using Mm -hmm. these voluntary programs to either reduce emissions or to help sequester a lot more carbon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And in our episode four, we talked a lot about some of these methods and in episode two, too, about uh, and why farmers also want to use them because they are benefits for productivity in the soil for water infiltration so in addition to the carbon piece which is as you said there's emerging research and we're still kind of figuring out how much we can pull down in there but that's a a growing space and it sounds like the U.S. government is investing a little bit more and more in the research to learn more about how we do that.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think that's a great point, which is, yes, there's the potential to sequester a significant amount of carbon. And, you know, from a climate change perspective, ultimately, in our sort of race to get to net zero emissions, Mm -hmm. that's critically important. But I think equally important for what this bill would do, you know, if we could get so right now, I think there's. In the 2012 Ag Census, there was 10 million acres of cover crops planted in the United States. But mm-hmm. in the last five years, we're maybe up to 15 million acres now. With the sort of level of investment that we're envisioning with the Climate Stewardship Act, we'd like to get it up to like 100 million acres of cover crops and get all kinds mm-hmm. of other practices you know, on more than 100 million new acres. And by doing that, there would be, to your point... Uh, it would reduce flooding. It would make farms more resilient to future extreme weather. It would protect drinking water, which right mm-hmm. now, you know, the runoff from farms causes problems with drinking water in some parts of the country. And so there would just be so many co benefits. And the same thing with um, planting that many trees, or, you know, the coastal mm-hmm. wetlands are really big sponges when there's storms. And so there'd be so many other benefits of investing these dollars.
0: Yeah. I'm wondering, so you said that, that the Climate Stewardship Act uses some of the existing structures that we already have through the farm mill. So one of those is the Conservation Stewardship Program. And we've talked about that program a little bit on this. Um, and I actually solicited our previous guests for, for any questions and input that that they might have. So this comes from a previous guest from Ferd Hef, Hefner. And I'm wondering, because... Um, so the question is basically if if we have the tools in the toolbox already already a lot of them um, we may be coming up with inventing new programs that that really stretch it and we'll talk about that with the with a farm system reform but so one of the tools is the the conservation stewardship program and that program in the most recent farm bill in twenty eighteen got a, a, a funding hit so uh, in starting in twenty twenty three twenty Four, I believe it's going, There's going to be five million dollars, $5, million, five billion dollars less. Excuse me, um, money for those environmental practices that you were mentioning that go into um, that are funded by the conservation stewardship program. And so, I'm curious, what's the disconnect? So we've got various teams, and and Senator Booker is not the only one of. Of uh, certainly presidential candidates and other major political figures that are really advocating for the conservation stewardship program, but in the 2018 Farm Bill, it sounds like there wasn't a huge fight, even on the part of Democrats, to keep that funding there. That these are these are programs that we know are working and can have these kinds of really beneficial um, uh, aspects for cl- flood and drought mitigation for climate. Um, greenhouse gas mitigation. What is the disconnect? And what can we do, I guess, for the next turn to to reverse this scenario the next time around so that that program, the, the conservation program, re- grows instead of shrinks in coming farm bills?
1: Yeah, so I think that, you know, when it comes to drafting the farm bill, they have this baseline amount of money and everything is a little bit zero-sum, right? And so if you want to fund more of this program over here, you have to find somewhere to cut it, right? Mm -hmm. And so the way that the dynamic played out in this past farm bill is CSP was cut, whereas some other conservation programs, I think, were able to get more money. But I think what we're viewing with this bill is taking it outside of the farm bill context, not saying we're going to wait six more years till the next farm bill and then get into Mm -hmm. a big fight over which pot of money are we going to pull into and away from, We're looking at investing new dollars substantially, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, substantial amounts of new dollars into the CSP program, into EQIP, into the Conservation Reserve program. And so I think, like, what the last farm bill gave this program, we would be talking about adding, like, $5 billion per year into into CSP. So exponentially increasing the funding for it, which, on the one hand may sound like a lot of money. On another hand, when you're looking at big picture-wise what we're going to need to invest to address climate change, it's actually a pretty small amount.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned it sounds like a big pot of money. So where, uh, is this something that we can address before we put a price on carbon? Um, because it initially when, when you present it to to taxpayers, it just sounds like a big pot of money. And until you start pricing out what the cost of all these carbons em- carbon emissions are. Um, how do you make the case for throwing that big pot of money at these services before yes. we have that price really a part of our, that carbon price integrated into our culture? I mean, I think it
1: could go either way. I think that, If they're, you know, depending on the results of this coming election and what the landscape is in Washington in 2021, if there's going to be a big climate change bill then, you know, our vision for the Climate Stewardship Act is this is one piece, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we're not saying that natural climate solutions solve the problem, right? Like, there's still, we need to really quickly transition off of fossil fuels, we need to electrify the transportation sector, there's so many other things yeah. we need to do, and and it's going to take major investments of dollars to do those things, but I think that when we explain to people what's the cost of inaction, right? If we don't invest these dollars over in the coming years, you know, the amount of flooding damage that we're going to have, right? Like, we're already seeing billions yeah. of dollars of damage each year, and from what the scientists are telling us, it's going to be getting worse and worse, Yeah, especially if we don't, you know, take aggressive action to reduce emissions.
0: Yeah. And one of the exciting things we've talked about on this show is that while some of these technologies are really, we're anticipating them developing in the future, the nature-based, is that what you what they're called? in the Yeah, they're
1: nature-based or natural climate solutions. Natural both.
0: climate solutions, we have that technology now. They're actually fairly low-tech. We're still developing the science and the research around them, but they are low-tech solutions that have a significant impact, and we can implement them now versus wait 10, 20 years even until those technologies are developed. I think
1: that's right. I think there's both the advantage that they're here today, and also I think you know, some of the other areas that we're going to need to um, invest in climate change and the things that we're going to need to do to reduce emissions, they're just going to be inherently more contentious, right? Like transitioning off of fossil fuels, Mm -hmm. there are just stakeholders that are going to fight that every step of the way. Whereas investing in existing voluntary, you know, USDA conservation programs that are popular with farmers across the country, Mm -hmm. programs that are really, you know, vastly um, oversubscribed, where maybe 30% of applications are getting funded today. Mm-hmm. And where we would, you know, we're not just taking money and putting it into these programs writ large. We're saying of the 300 practices that can currently be funded with EQUIP dollars, these 30 have been identified by scientists as having the most, you know, potential um, climate change benefit and greenhouse gas sequestration benefit. And so um, I think that would be what we would do.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about the contentiousness of this. I'm curious, what what was the response that you got from different stakeholders about the Climate Stewardship Act, whether that's the farming, the agricultural community, the um, environmentalist community, others who responded to this bill?
1: Yeah, so the Climate Stewardship Act, we've really got very, very positive feedback across the spectrum. And so, you know, as you mentioned, the Green New Deal resolution is very high level, right? It talks about how we need to address climate change sort of at the scale and at the pace that the scientists are telling us Mm -hmm. we need to act in order to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming and to, you know, get to net zero emissions as quickly as possible. And it mentions ag, you know, a little bit, Mm -hmm. but. It really does not say concretely how we're going to do it. And so with the bill, what we attempted to do was build a broad coalition, starting with family farmers and ranchers. And, you know, you probably saw when the Green New Deal resolution was rolled out, despite the fact that, you know, the things that it says in it should not be controversial. You know, there was statements that were made or, or um, fact sheets that were released that then in parts of the country by people who don't support the Green New Deal were really used to like demonize it and say it's all about cow farts and taking away your meat. And we mm-hmm. wanted to say like, look, when we're talking about a Green New Deal and a Green New Deal for farmers and agriculture, don't listen to that noise, right? Like this is what we're talking about. We're yeah. talking about using existing programs, investing in farmers and ranchers in ways that will benefit them, you know, in so many ways. And Um, So we have the family farm and ranch groups, we have environmental groups, we have a lot of groups that are focused on reforestation and wetlands Mm -hmm. conservation, and, you know, all in sort of a coalition of 70 or 80 groups that have endorsed the Climate Stewardship Act. And we really haven't heard anything sort of negative about it, like to the extent that maybe there are some stakeholders that we're still hoping might endorse it in the future, but they haven't yet, we have not heard them saying anything negative about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're excited, and Senator Booker's excited about sort of how it's been received.
0: Okay. Well, let's get into a somewhat stickier bill with that. Uh, So this Monday, just this week, you released, uh, Senator Booker announced the Farm System Reform Act, uh, and it's made a pretty good splash. So could you tell our listeners what it entails?
1: So the Farm System Reform Act is um, a bill that Senator Booker introduced that is an attempt to, you know, to the extent that The Green New Deal talks not just about reducing emissions and focusing on climate change, but also taking existing systems and making them more fair and eliminating injustices that are in them and focusing on um, frontline communities. And so the um, Climate Stewardship Act, while important and necessary, is just one piece, right? And so Mm -hmm. the Farm System Reform Act would make multiple changes to try to make the system more fair for family farmers and ranchers and sort of tilt the balance of power away from the big corporate meat packers and integrators and you know to the family farmers and ranchers and so what is in it um it would place a moratorium on new large factory farms new large CAFOs as they're known concentrated animal feeding operations um, it would put a moratorium on new ones it would Um, prevent existing large CAFOs from expanding, and it would phase out large CAFOs by 2040. In conjunction with that, it provides $10 billion a year of funding for voluntary buyouts for contract farmers and uh, CAFO operators that want to transition to other types of agriculture. Mm -hmm. And it also shifts liabilities and responsibilities that currently are on contract farmers where it belongs to these big corporate integrators. So the pollution that comes from these large CAFOs, if there's harm to neighboring communities and neighboring um, property owners, if there's um, pollution to groundwater Mm -hmm. and problems with drinking, all that would be shifted to the party that really is where it belongs. And
0: could you explain, so when we talk about vertical integration in livestock farming, so we know when you say an integrator, what does that mean? So, so these meat packers, these are companies, think Smithfield, right,
1: is an mm-hmm. example. In, and what they do is they process and package meat. That's where they got the name meat packers a long time ago. But ultimately now, over time, they've become, the, the, the system has become vertically integrated. So these companies not only process and package the meat... They own the animals from the time they're born. And and what they do is they essentially pay, um, they enter into contracts with farmers, farmers who used to be independent farmers or ranchers that would raise animals and then have multiple buyers and go and sell them into, like, a competitive fair marketplace. Yeah. Now these companies um, contract with them. The farmer is... Uh, required initially to invest hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to build big barns on their property, to build potentially big manure lagoons. Mm -hmm. And then they're responsible for the disposal of the waste in those lagoons. And the integrators, the companies, they drop off the animals either, you know, when they're just born or really young. And the contract farmers just raise them Mm -hmm. for the company. And then the company comes and picks them up. And it's the company that then um, slaughters them and packages them and sells them and they're making record profits, while meanwhile these contract farmers, what studies show is very often they're living at or below the poverty line if they're relying upon, you know, the income just from this contract farming.
0: So this is really about breaking apart some of that consolidation and that vertical integration in livestock farming. And this is a long you're building on what's called the Packers and Packers and Stockyards Act, which is hundred-year-old law and concept that has uh, well in the most recent that was supposed to kind of have give it be flushed out and and have a nice reboost uh reboot but, but, and then when obama left office it it got tabled and shoved under the under the table for for a while it seems like and so you guys are trying to give that a little bit more strength to come back to and that's a that the Packers and Stockyards Act is is something that a lot of smaller livestock producers have really looked to for fair competition in the market.
1: Yeah that's exactly right and so um, before these two bills that we've been talking about the Climate Stewardship Act and the Farm System Reform Act mm-hmm. Senator Booker and Senator Tester a few months ago reintroduced a bill that's called the Merger Moratorium Act mm-hmm. and that would stop These big mergers in the food and farm space. So what you have is a um, marketplace that over time has gone from having, you know, I heard a a rancher speaking about how 30 or 40 years ago, he would sell his cattle once a month. And he'd have, you know, the night before he was going to be selling them that day, he'd have 30 people you know, there. First thing in the morning, you have one or two people sleeping out at night, waiting. <laughs> right, and now that same rancher maybe has one buyer for their product. And so what Smithfield you have is, doesn't
0: come and sleep on his uh, back porch.
1: <laughs> they definitely do not. That's too bad. Um, and and so so that bill would would stop them. And that was actually a bill that Senator Wellstone had first introduced in 1999. Right, like he saw the writing on the wall mm-hmm. 20 years ago that like things were getting too consolidated. And so so this bill would stop. The um, concentration from getting worse. But that's not enough. And so what the Farm System Reform Act does, in addition to the parts that we already talked about, is it would update the Packers and Stockyards Act to do things like protect those contract farmers from retaliation, to require that the contracts be drafted in ways that are more fair to the farmers mm-hmm. and ranchers, to have more price transparency. Because a lot of times the, um, the contract farmers don't even, it's not even clear, like, what their payment is based on, like what's the formula, what's the underlying like justice for it. And and then the bill would also restore country of origin labeling, mandatory country of origin labeling, which is just something else that, again, would make the system more fair and and benefit the family farmers and ranchers.
0: So I imagine there is going to be more pushback on this, Um, both... From these integrators that have a tremendous amount of power, um, with this extreme consolidation in our market, and then from the roughly twenty thousand or so CAFO farms, as they're called, confined animal feeding operations that exist in the U.S. So I'm curious. Um, the food system in general is a a system. So if you push on one part, everything else has to has to shift a little bit. And this is a pretty big a pretty big nudge to one part of the food system. So I'm, I'm wondering about, uh, so we're talking about, uh, 35, uh, the, in terms of cattle, I think that CAFOs are roughly close to 40% of production. Um, in uh, or, and then in dairy farms, it's a smaller percent of farms, but it's like half of dairy farms would qualify. As a KFO, um, chickens—it's a smaller number of farms, less than a thousand farms, I think—but it's a majority of the chicken production. So it, it's different for each for each um, commodity. I, I'm curious: what are some of the other pieces of legislation you think might be necessary to help this bill really fly? So I'm thinking about um, if. If production can't be consolidated in the way that it has become over, over the past decades, what does this do to infrastructure that we've lost so many slaughterhouses, for example, across the U.S.? Um, uh, you mentioned the country of origin labeling. How is this impacting trade? I know that the country of origin labeling got it got smacked down because of an, a, a, a World Trade Organization issue. So there, And that's something that we lost, that, that the U.S., um, Farmers who wanted that we lost that battle. How much of this comes down to uh, Americans eating less meat, with a potential price of meat uh, rise in price of meat? What does it mean for rural jobs? Um, most of the livestock farmers that I've worked with actually worked at a hospital that I worked at in rural Minnesota. They were dairy farmers. They, they were, you know, you know, or, or other commodity livestock farmers and. Uh, they had to pick up a second job because, like many people in agriculture, they're working multiple jobs. Does this mean there need to be more r- off-farm rural jobs to be able to accommodate these smaller livestock farms? So I'm uh, just thinking, what are some of the other pieces that would have to be in place for this to work in the system? Yeah, so there's a lot there that you
1: just yeah, yeah, I did, like, let, let me unpack it a little bit, and let me start with <laughs> what you ended with, which is, do I think there's going to have to be more sort of off-farm employment? I think the answer is absolutely not. I think that the direction that we're attempting to push things is so that the small and mid-sized farmers who've been disappearing instead would be able to actually, with a more fair system, make enough money that they could actually sustain themselves through the farming Mm -hmm. like they have for generations and generations, right? And so what we have is, I think you mentioned the number, there's something a little bit less than 20,000 Large CAFOs nationally Mm -hmm. out of 1.2 million farms where we're raising livestock, right? So we're talking about something between one and two percent of the existing farms. And for the next 20 years, they could stay, you know, anything that's operating today could operate for the next 20 years. The only thing is the existing large CAFOs couldn't get bigger, right? So any new growth Mm -hmm. that's going to happen is going to happen with the small and medium-sized farms mm-hmm. and not with those mega farms. And yeah. then by 20 years from now, they would need to be phased out. But we would be, you know, putting $10 billion a year to help with those transitions for the farmers that want to transition away. And so I think that, you know, what you would see is a much more diffuse system, not mm-hmm. necessarily less livestock. Like I mean, actually, our bill's not dictating sort of what the transition is going to end up you know sort of being or how we're going to get there we're just saying this is what we need to do over the next 20 years and here's both like the legislative framework and the funding to mm-hmm. make it happen but our expectation is that both by getting rid of those largest um KFOs that are really difficult to compete with if you're a small or mid-sized farmer that's trying to do things in a way that actually takes into account animal welfare and environmental you know concerns with those going away and with these other reforms of, you know, the relationship between the contract farmer and the integrator, that the integrator is now responsible for the waste and for the pollution and mm-hmm. for the harm to neighbors and that, you know, the um, they can't use a tournament system anymore where right now these integrators, if you're a contract farmer and I'm a contract farmer, they'll essentially, our pay will be determined based on how we produce compared to each other. Yeah. And so, but meanwhile... The integrator is the one that controls, they're dropping off chicks to you and chicks to me and feed to you and feed to me. But meanwhile, if they find out that I've gone and spoke to my member of Congress or done anything, they can give me inferior, right, sick chicks or less high-quality feed. And then ultimately the outcomes had nothing to do with how I raised those animals or anything that I did. And so I think all that to say, the system that we envision – the family farmers and ranchers would be a lot more of them. There'd be a lot more opportunity for them, and they would be able to actually thrive.
0: And what about trade? So I think about this um, uh, with fruit and vegetable production that the, that are increasing. Increasingly, we are we are importing importing fruit and vegetable production because the costs of production abroad may be lower than what than what we grapple with here and you know even when for example california said we're gonna we're gonna raise uh, the farm worker wage to minimum wage what a concept we're gonna r- override this this hundred year long uh, discriminatory practice of saying you know if you're an agricultural worker you don't have to make minimum wage and people argued um That, you know, production is just going to go across the the border south to Mexico because of prices. Uh, It seems like this might require some real strong trade measures because cheaper meat can flow into the U.S.
1: I I think that's right. I think that, you know trade deals need to take these issues into account. I think the sort of family farmers and ranchers need to be at the table when future trade deals are being negotiated. And Mm -hmm. I think that, like, exactly those issues need to be um, addressed. And I think going back to the country of origin labeling, right now, under Mm -hmm. existing law, if you have an animal that was raised, um, slaughtered in another country, and then they ship it here and it gets repackaged and inspected that right now can get labeled product of the usa and so it's really hard to your point if the cost of production over there is a lot cheaper and you do have consumers here that actually want to support their local farmers and farmers in the usa and they're willing to even you know pay for that with the product of usa on it and meanwhile we're labeling the foreign meat with that right and so there's a lot of things i think we could be doing to address some of those issues
0: I've heard it described that, and I mean, these, I think these systems are pretty difficult to entangle, right? I've heard it described as um, animals go to camp in the U.S. and then come back to be, you know, or they, they go to camp for a couple of weeks and then come back to mommy and daddy to be slaughtered. So I think um, pulling apart those systems will be a real challenge, especially with ground beef where everything's mixed on in there. Uh, we need to take a quick break and then we will be back. Thank you. Welcome back listeners. You are listening to Lunch Agenda, recorded live in Washington, D.C. I am your host Julie Kurtz. We are speaking today with Adam Zipkin, Deputy Chief of Staff for Senator Cory Booker. Uh, I'd like to transition well, I want to ask one more question actually about um, this issue of CAFOs and the transition concept. I really like this because I think it's so important we can complain about our food system, but if, but if we don't ta- think about the process, the rather painful process of getting from here to there, we're not gonna make it. And making that, as the Green New Deal talks about, a just process. Uh, and I'm wondering about the 10, $10 billion a year, is that what's set aside for for transition? That that is $10 billion a year That is would be going to large farms. And I'm wondering about the... uh, I obviously, if, if you are a huge farm, you need the support in order to transition out of that kind of farming. But I also think about the existing smaller livestock farmers, or organic producers, or specialty crop producers, all these things that they might transition to, who now would be competing with these still presumably fairly large farms just under a certain limit that have been subsidized by the government for the, that transition. And I'm wondering, I could imagine a lot of pushback from from those producers um, and as well as those who are just concerned with the justice of this that, wow, that's a lot of money to put toward wealthier farmers. Yeah, so I think that
1: for, well, first of all, A couple things about the payments, which is any um, size operator that's engaged in an animal feeding operation would be eligible. So whether, even if you're small or medium or large, Mm. if you want to transition away from this sort of concentrated model to more pasture-based or to Mm. growing crops, anyone would be eligible for it. It's not just the largest ones. And also integrators are ineligible, right? So to the extent that the current system is sort of a combination of Um, the integrator model that we've been talking about where you have the contract farmers that are actually raising the animals, those contract farmers who took on all this debt and who, you know, really, we've had them come in to tell us, like, I wish I never went down this road. I wish I hadn't, you know, Mm -hmm. started to be a contract grower. There's all these problems from it, but I'm stuck, right? I can't get out because I have a mortgage on my farm and I have a mortgage on, and so we would be helping those contract farmers, but The other um, large CAFOs that are run by the integrators themselves, that are run by the big corporations, they would not be eligible for our payments. Mm -hmm. They'd be subject, they would not be allowed to grow, and they would be subject to the phase-out in 20 years, but they'd have to fund that themselves.
0: Yeah. And what about grain and feed farmers? So uh, roughly a third of U.S. corn, I believe, goes to, to animal feed, and soybeans... 70%, 70% depending on how you break it down because a lot of soybean oil actually c- humans are consuming that we're consuming that but almost all of soybean meal feeds animals and if you if we take away their biggest local markets i can imagine you know their biggest local buyers are gone now and there's going to be a lot of pushback so i'm curious what do we say to those feed producers? And then what about all of the land that is used to grow the corn, soy, millet, other other animal feed that is a part of our livestock system in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, so I don't think that we can necessarily say that there's not going to be that demand there for the crops that are being grown for feed. I think what we can say is there won't be just a handful of potential buyers, but the system will be much more diffuse, right? So instead of having... 20,000 really big, large CAFOs will potentially have hundreds of thousands of small and medium sized farms, mm-hmm. a lot of which would potentially still be needing to buy that grain mm-hmm. to feed to you know the livestock if, if that's the way that they're continuing to raise them, where they you know keep them out in the pasture for a part of their life, but then put them into a feedlot. It would just be a smaller feedlot. And so I think for those growers of the grain by having more potential buyers, that's what we want for everyone in yeah. the system, right? Yeah. Like part of the problem is how everything is so concentrated. And so by breaking up that concentration, I think it would potentially benefit them. And I don't think it's necessarily something they would need to fear or oppose.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm sure you'll get pushback on the, the efficiency of that system, right? That you're not getting the biggest bang for your buck. Um, and as I've heard a, a small smaller farmer say, it's you don't want to be a small farmer next to that bang. Um, but, you know, when you have those those big buyers that can move a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of product, it um, it becomes very attractive to those larger growers. So, well, let's, I want to move on to talk about just some more general um, pieces of the Green New Deal. Uh, I do want to say real quick that there's a, a a great poll that just came out of Johns Hopkins. I'm sure you guys are well aware of this, the Center for a Livable Future, that did a poll on uh, the response to CAFOs um, from nationally, but then also looking at... Specifically, Iowa and North Carolina, where there's a really high concentration of KFOS, and so they found that 57% supported greater government oversight of these KFOS, and that 43% of respondents said they favored a national ban. So you guys are living up to their their desire, <laughs> um, and only 38% opposed the ban. So there, obviously, there are some circles where this would be very unpopular, but you've got a good percentage of people that are. That are really concerned about this, and 80% of respondents said they're concerned about air and water, um, worker safety, health problems that are caused by by KFOS. And 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 in those two states where they they pulled over 400 people each, there was also a real fairly positive response to some of the legislation that both Iowa and North Carolina have have implemented and tried to implement to um, reduce KFO expansion. So. Um, there are some differences based on families that are dependent on farm income versus urban families. And, um, but I think that's a really interesting thing if, if folks want to tune into their website and, and look at some of the results that just came out there. Um, I think one other piece that one of our guests mentioned, um, a few weeks ago, who's also, who's from North Carolina said, you know, um, that, the concentration of KFOS are predominantly in communities of color or where communities of color own land and, and as she would say that's it's hard to argue that that's not intentional and so I'm curious what how much of this you think is an environmental justice issue.
1: I, th- I think it's a huge environmental justice issue. And to give you a little background, so um, as you mentioned, I was with Senator Booker when he was Mayor Booker in Newark, and we really saw firsthand in Newark how broken our food system is for the residents there, where we have you know really big parts of the city that are food deserts, right, where people have no access to healthy um, produce to fresh fruits and vegetables, and we did a lot at the local level to try to change that. We brought in new supermarkets. We gave grants to bodegas to bring in refrigeration equipment. We started growing a lot of produce in the city with multi-acre farms, also with small little you know neighborhood gardens, and mm-hmm. distributing it locally for farm stands and farmers markets. And we sort of came to Washington having seen firsthand, you know, the harm the system was inflicting there, and then immediately as we started looking at the issue statewide in New Jersey. So New Jersey is the garden state, right? And we actually grow, yeah. you know, we have 10,000 farms. People think it's um, a really urban and suburban state, and it is, but we have a lot of farms, and um, these are important issues for farmers in New Jersey. But Senator Booker and I went to Duplin County, North Carolina, about three years ago. And to your point, in predominantly you know, African-American, low-income communities, for people who've been living there for generations and all of a sudden these massive CAFOs have sort of um, expanded in their backyards and you have people that were telling us, I'm a prisoner in my own house, I can't go outside, I have all these respiratory problems, Mm -hmm. my drinking water, we've had this well for a hundred years and now the water is polluted and so I think you know, sort of all the issues that we work on that Senator Booker sort of tasks us with working on, we're always looking at it through an environmental justice lens. And definitely there's a big environmental justice aspect, you know, to these KFOS. Yeah.
0: yeah. So continuing on the this justice theme, so, um, and this is also drawing on some of the questions from previous guests. So we have... Uh, in, in episode six, six, we talked a lot about land tenure and, and an agricultural system that really works for everyone, and we l- listeners can tune into that. We talked a lot about the, the land loss that has happened in African-American communities, the historic Pigford versus the United States Department of Agriculture um, lawsuit, and I'm wondering if we have a USDA that really works for all farm workers, farmers, and ranchers, or do we have a USDA that... that Works best for 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 white and well earning farmers is um, that this kind of get bigger, big, big get bigger, get out. And I'm wondering specifically how Senator Booker would propose thinking about a Green New Deal for a food system to reform some of the internal complaint process for farmers and for equal employment opportunities um, and the, the, the sort of long term discrimination that has happened within the USDA, both with farmers and just internally in that process where things have, there's just been years of, of neglect in that way. So,
1: Yeah, so a couple of thoughts. Um, you know, the comment that you mentioned by the Ag Secretary of, you know, in the U.S., the big get bigger and the small get out, I think that, let me say, that Senator Booker could not disagree more, right? I think the idea that somehow concentration is beneficial or inevitable he just fundamentally disagrees with. We fundamentally disagree with that premise and mm-hmm. actually think that it's a lot of it comes from policies in Washington and federal laws and regulations that need to be put in place or updated to change that, right? And to be moving, trying to go away from all this concentration and not sort of blessing it or saying it's inevitable. Yeah. Um, but, and then on your second question, you know. As we started working on this, first the Climate Stewardship Act and then the Farm System Reform Act, initially we had some conversations about like, should we just do one big bill that would be you know, a Green New Deal for farmers and it would get Mm. at climate change, but also all these like reforming the system and all these other things. And we ultimately realized there's just too much there, right? And so we split it and we did the Climate Stewardship Act. Then we did now the Farm System Reform Act, but there's still a number of other issues that I think our office will pivot to next, one of them being what you're describing with the African-American farmers and just the historic injustice over, you know, decades and decades that I think requires both major reform at USDA, but also, you know, some form of compensation. And I think that, you know, the way we've worked on these issues is we need to sit with the advocates and with the African-American farmers and we need to craft solutions with them. And I think, you know, in the same way that we did both climate stewardship act and and the reform bill. And I think that is very high on our to-do list.
0: Great. Well, we need to wrap it up now. So I have one quick question and I didn't warn you, so I'll give you out if you need to. Uh, We have a lunch agenda tradition here where we ask our, our guests for an action item. So this is just one simple thing that listeners can do to make a change in the food system for the better. It can be, you know, eat more purple foods. Something simple. So I don't know if there's, you have something on the top of your head that you want to...
1: So I do. I think I'll need to explain it a little. I want to explain it a little <laughs> okay. bit, but I do. And so, you know, Senator Booker has made it clear that, like, he doesn't think that his role is to tell people what they should eat, and he doesn't think the federal government's role is to tell people what to eat. But what... The federal government can and should do and what members of congress can do is we can be educating people and informing people and so i think that the answer to your question is that people can and should just get really informed about like the impacts of their food choices right so Mm -hmm. um right now the amazon is burning and the amazon is burning so that that land can be cleared to produce more meat right to either graze cattle yeah. or to plant soybeans, to feed to animals, to yeah. have more meat. And so I think that there's a lot of people who probably listen to your podcasts and just a lot of people out there that care deeply about climate change and environmental issues. And they want to be, look, we need to do something at the macro level. Congress needs to act and you know pass comprehensive legislation. But at the personal level, we can all be doing things. And I think it's more obvious that people are like, I can get an electric car or I could put solar panel on my roof. But you should also think about the implications of the food choices that you make and just learn as much as you can and and make your decisions based on sort of your values.
0: That's great. Values-based food choices. Well, Adam, I cannot thank you enough. It's been such a pleasure to have you on and I think um, such a wonderful finale to this series and thinking about how as we integrate... um, from policy ideas and input from farmers, scientists, food business, labor advocates, um, all these different people and think about then how it makes its way, how all these voices make their way into the halls of Congress and and shape policies that really do impact all of us. So thank you so much. I want to make sure that people can follow you, which really means following Senator Booker, um, at at Sen Booker on, do I have that right? For great we got the nod from from the comms team uh and then also at www.booker.senate.gov i am your host julie kurtz you can follow me at soil soul food it has been such an absolute pleasure to be your host these past nine weeks i can't think of a better finale kiko born will be back in 2020 and uh i will i may be guesting again so I look forward to to engaging with listeners once again, and I wish all of our Lunch Agenda listeners a beautiful holiday. Thanks again, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher. And our DJ sets are available on Mixcloud.com slash Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at FullServiceRadio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullservicerdo instagram and facebook at full service radio thanks for listening